Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to New Books in History, a channel of the New Books Network. I am Vladislav Lilic, a doctoral candidate in modern European history at Vanderbilt University. In today's episode, it is my pleasure to welcome Dr. Samuel Foster, visiting academic at University of East Anglia's School of History. In the next 45 or so minutes, we will discuss his first monograph, Yugoslavia in the British Imagination, Peace, War, and Peasants before Tito, published by Bloomsbury earlier this summer. Dr. Foster reevaluates historical Western representations of Southeastern Europe before the Second World War by focusing on the influence of Britain's domestic social context rather than foreign policy and literary depictions. This included poverty and social political unrest, rural nostalgia, the impact of the First World War, economic stagnation, and the evolution of the public's fear in conjunction with the growing prevalence of British consumerism. Drawing on a range, a range of previously unexplored archival sources, this compelling transnational analysis is an important contribution to the study of British social history and the nature of statehood in the modern Balkans. Dr. Foster, thank you for joining New Books in History and for taking the time to talk to me about your work. Thank you very much for having me. As is customary on our channel, I will start us off by asking how your previous intellectual and research trajectories had led you to write this book. Well, to begin with, I suppose it started all the way back at school. Um, I was always very interested in the origins and causes of the First World War. Um, in the British education system in general, while this type of topic is touched upon, it's usually only done so in a very broad sense. Um, there's typically a lot of focus on the actions of actors such as, say, Britain, uh, Germany, obviously. Um, and the Southeastern Europe, uh, specifically through the lens of what was then Austro-Hungary, is always presented in a manner as being, you could almost say, almost as a kind of war delivery mechanism. Um, that was the, that was one of the things I noticed, particularly when uh, looking at this in school, uh, reading around, reading on the sub topic. So that kind of fired my initial interest, particularly in southeastern Europe, uh, in countries such as Serbia, uh, the areas that would later become Yugoslavia. Then at university, I actually studied um, as an undergraduate uh, the history of Yugoslavia. This was quite a broad thing, um, focusing mostly on... Um, the interwar period and communist period, and then obviously the uh, disintegration and uh, conflicts that arose in the 1990s. Um, and that kind of, again, fueled my interest, particularly in the early, um, again, continued to fuel my interest, especially in the earlier po- periods, uh, the interwar specifically. Um, and it was pretty much during my, my master's when I was actually looking at um, 
my master's looked at interwar depictions of um, Yugoslavia in British uh, diplomatic correspondence, but focusing on the uh, the Yugoslavia monarchy, the, what was uh, the House of Karajojevic, um, and how that was presented or viewed as a potential unifying symbol in Yugoslavia uh, prior, of course, to the rise of Tito. And it was then that I, there that I stumbled across a um, economic and anthropological text by a uh, Croatian um, economist called Rudolf Bicinic, uh, titled Kako Živi Narod. Mm-hmm. Um, Bicinic himself had been a political opponent, uh, especially of the royal dictatorship of uh, King Alexander Karajoj. Um, from 1929 to 34, he was a close friend and associate of Vladko Macek, who uh, succeeded the uh, previous head of the Croatian Peasant Party, the main opposition in interwar Yugoslavia at the time, um, uh, and Stjepan Radic. And uh, Bicinic himself, uh, in sort of a, um, he compiled this from a visit of what he called the uh, the passive region, so specifically the Dalmatian. The areas along the Dalmatian Bosnia Herzegovinian border, um, again, very underdeveloped at the time, very rural, uh, very sparsely populated. And uh, but it was what struck me about it was how Bichnich deviated from his party's sort of ideological line in characterizing the peasant communities of these territories, which he called the passive regions, mm-hmm. as living under something called the tyranny of custom. Beforehand, um, I'd always been sort of the peasantry had always been presented, particularly in the official level, either in kind of this very romanticized mm-hmm. agrarian or pastoralized um, sort of a framework frame or as a kind of economic block that sort of needed to be resolved. So Bichinich's um, insights and his kind of just his the way he sort of humanized and presented the peasantry, um, I would say kind of spurred me on to um, really pursue that at my PH- during my PhD. And um, it was whilst I was doing the research for my PhD, uh, going to archives, I decided to, again, continue focusing on Britain. But I also, again, at this point, began learning, um, uh, studying uh, Serbian, um, mainly to, to try and help me kind of get a better understanding of uh, what would be what the, uh, the quote unquote Yugoslavian perspective as well. That I started to uh, I started to read through a lot of um, archival material, particularly from the First World War. Um, especially from uh, medical humanitarian volunteers, as well as British military personnel um, based in Serbia and Macedonia during the Great War. And what again struck me, besides kind of this, the occasion, uh, again, the peasantry would continually reappear as a, as a motif, but what also struck me was the fact that um, having in the secondary literature, especially, I was always being informed that uh, British people, when they traveled to Southeastern Europe, um, or indeed many other parts of the world, tended to carry prejudices and preconceived notions with them. Uh, but what I really noticed, particularly looking at these volunteer, these volunteers, most of whom, again, were women, or many of the soldiers in, uh, in, um, who were stationed on what was then known as the Salonica or Macedonian Front, was the fact that they were either very disinterested in their surroundings in general, or they tended to frame everything not so much from any real deeply held prejudices from but from their own concerns particularly um their concerns obviously about the war but also their concerns about their lives back in britain um their their economic situations their the the context of their job um their notions about um sort of 
their particularly again particularly their employment prospects in the context of many of these medical volunteers many of whom were professionally trained doctors or nurses who'd been struggling to find work in the British medical sector um, and I'd say that really kind of is where the or- the sort of the origin the genesis of the book really came from mm-hmm. um, the idea of marrying of considering and framing um, sort of these intercultural and transnational perceptions, mm-hmm. not so much through a lens of high politics or literature, most of which was off, would have been authored by, you know, mostly middle class or upper class um, and wealth, wealthy, uh, wealthy travellers or diplomats, but more through the lens of not necessarily um, nor, uh, sort of everyday people, but for people who are generally closer to the average, to the experience of, say, the average Britain. Um, so, yeah, ultimately, I would probably say that's where the genesis of the book comes from. Mm-hmm. It's a wonderful segue into my my next question. Uh, our listeners will be familiar with the works of such historians as Wendy Bracewell, Larry Wolf, Maria Todorova. How does your approach depart from these earlier studies on the place of Southeastern Europe in the Western imagination? In particular, how do you treat Balkanism, a well-established paradigm that sees the Balkans as a liminal cultural space in the Western mind? Yeah, um, I would say just uh, starting off firstly with um, Balkanism or what I call in the book the Balkanist thesis um one of its i would i would say i as i alluded to at the end of my last response um enduring i wouldn't say weaknesses but um one of its enduring trends which isn't necessarily uh, that helpful i would i would um argue is the fact that there's a propensity to over rely on um certain sources that for whatever reason um are either well, possibly because they tend to they're considering more accessible than much of the archival material from this period, but just uh, the certain sources that were usually authored um, only from a certain perspective. That being the perspective of the upper middle to upper class traveller, um, activist, diplomat, um, whatever you. Kind of uh, sort of so people moving from generally sort of people from a segment of British society that was, suffice to say, not very close to the perspective of what the uh, what was often known at the time as the proverbial man in the street. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say my own um, that in terms of methodology, my own uh, work is attempting to move away from that to a degree, um, and the actual pro- idea of Balkanism itself. Um, Whilst, again, I, in the book itself, I'm not trying to argue for Balkanism as a somehow a redundant concept. Obviously, even amongst, um, say, those who were serving in the Balkans during the First World War, um, obviously there were evident prejudices, there was xenophobia, um, there were preconceptions. But what I'm trying to argue in the book specifically is those preconceptions have, to a certain degree, been somewhat overstated. And also... When you look at a culture or how understanding of another culture emerges, very often it's not so much um, it's not so much as a consequence of some long-held prejudice, although those can exist. It's more the fact that um, 
much of what is being presented, uh, particularly how another people, a foreign people or culture is being presented, tends to be more a reflection of the immediate historical context in which those depictions form. Uh, this goes right to the point of my theoretical um, understanding, which is predicate. Which again, Balkanism itself, I argue, is a is a, is one particular iteration of this, and that's um, the study of the field of imagology. Um, imagology as a field has been around for decades, really. It originates in the 1950s. Um, incident uh, in France, um, it's, it's, it's pretty much a form of what's known as comparative literature. Mm-hmm. And um, imagology itself is a branch of comparative, com, excuse me, comparative literature that deals with the cross-natural national perceptions and the construction of cultural um, racial, national, ethnic, and even social and political stereotypes, um, often through what are termed images. Uh, the image, um, particularly in the context of many of these Balkanist texts, doesn't necessarily refer to a literal photograph or drawing. Um, it uh, refers to a mental image. Um, again, much of this is derived from uh, Edward Said, uh, it, probably may not come to any, any as any great surprise. Um, and the idea of the image itself is um, a kind of, could be described almost as a kind of recurrent motif or trope that reappears and is re... But, um, the, but, the, but, the, but the issue of images, as particularly as Eugene McHale has argued in his own book, um, The British and the Balkans, which came out in 2011, is that... It can't really be understood as something that's fixed. It's always um, it's always being reimagined or reinterpreted to suit a specific historic context, and that's really what I emphasise in the book, um, and particularly and particularly in, and particularly and in particular, um, moving away from literature and political discourses on the region. I especially focus on. Uh, Britain's changing social context, um, specifically, as I believe you brought up in the introduction, Mm -hmm. uh, the changing domestic situation, and most notably of all, the immediate immediate and and immediate impact of the Great War itself. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So let us immediately offer an illustration. Uh, In the early chapters, you describe the rise of cultural pessimism, and the rising public fixation on British national efficiency during the last quarter of the 19th century, the so-called Long Depression of 1873-1896. How did these crises and anxieties mold the British perspectives on the South Slavic lands in this late Victorian period? I'm very glad you brought up the Great Depression because uh, <laughs> that's um, that's a point that's often I feel get that's very that very too often gets overlooked, mm-hmm. even in um, what might be termed mainstream uh, British social history. Um, sorry, the Long Depression. Mm-hmm. The um, So just to uh, provide a bit of perspectives, the Long Depression relates to a, um, to a prolonged period of not recession so much, but economic stagnation that affected um, various parts of the British economy uh, from the... Um, around the mid 1870s to the mid 1890s, although um, much of uh, the it, it, it had considerably longer lasting impact af- uh, Im- impacts after this, um, specifically in the British agricultural sector, which uh, 
due since the advent of the Industrial Revolution had itself been undergoing rapid change. Um, in, con in relation to how this affected the Balkans, I would argue that by um, given one of the key uh, influences of the Long Depression had been its um, this uh, largely um, it's incredibly negative uh, this uh, sort of um, I would say detrimental impact on British farming, British agriculture, which itself. Um, Again, even by the 1870, uh, 1870s onwards, hat was um, very much a minority uh, economic preoccupation at that point. Um, but it will that itself it, it, it itself agriculture, and particularly in the British popular press, uh, the media, uh, the non-specialist media, um, especially, was um, often attributed this sense of uh, inherent romanticism. Um, it's an idea, particularly in England, it's important to emphasize in England, especially um, agriculture was often um, when it was discussed at all. Again, here's another another issue of these things is they often tend to get brought up incredibly inconsistency and only in response to some um, major incident. Um, even when it was discussed, it tended to be done so in this romanticist through this romanticist um, perception. Um often presented as kind of the the source of uh, English rather than British um, values and uh, positive characteristics that were deemed inherent to the majority of the population. However, um, by the end of the 19th century, um, this itself was becoming coloured, particularly by uh, other domestic concerns regarding urban poverty uh, high unemployment, much of which was uh, focused on the East End of London. Um, and that in turn led to an increasing sense of anxiety about um, the so-called uh, quality of the um, of the British of the British of, Br of the British stock or the British population, the sense that uh, urban, living was um, somehow leading to a, uh, this in, this uh, slow process of uh, what eugenics might what eugenics at the time would describe as degeneration in the mm -hmm. in the British population. Um, again, none of this was consistent or had any real sort of scientific basis. In fact, one of the main things about this was its striking was its uh, absolute scientific illiteracy. Ideas about many of these ideas were already even by 1900. Many of these ideas were already deemed completely. Um, uh, without any rep, well, deemed by more accredited scientists as being without merit, uh, even again by the nineteenth century. But this itself created, but the long depression itself, I would argue, almost more than anything else, created this ambient sense of pessimism, uh, particularly in the British public sphere, um, in much of what was, could be called the national conversation. And this was very much again something that's never discussed in works by, say, Todd Ro so that much in mm -hmm. works by Todd Rover or Bracewell was ultimately projected onto onto depictions of the Balkans at the time. Um, uh, you get, um, particularly from around 1903, so incidentally, immediately in the aftermath of the Boer War, I don't think it's any coincidence that um, mm. this starts to happen after 1902, particularly. Um, you, have this you have this gradual shift um, although it, this had, of course, been happening in the 1890s, but it's really the after the aftermath of the Boer War that starts to take off. You have this gradual shift in the uh, depictions, not so much of the countries of the Balkans, 
but the population, the general population of the Balkans, specifically in this case, the peasantry, who um, unsurprisingly made up the overwhelming majority of the region's populace. And um, it's not so much that they were presented as kind of some sort of ideal to which Britain should aspire to, but more as an analogy for what in many cases was deemed to be lost or lacking in British society. Um, things such as communal values, uh, which were often viewed as being only, um, that were, could only really be cultivated through the village, for example, the village or uh, what was known in um, in Serbia and other countries as the Zadruga, the uh, family or collective. Um, these were kind of viewed as inherently positive values. Um, and this in turn led to a, I wouldn't say overt romanticism, but a kind of low key romanticizing of peasant society at the time. Um, many, for example, uh, certain correspondents such as John Foster Fraser, who was a quite pr- a prominent, a very prominent um, journalist and author of the time, act- um, incidentally coming from Scotland. Um, it's what's interesting as well as many of the people writing about this tend to be either of Scottish or Irish extraction. Um, so uh, it's so kind of this, so that you can also sort of sense a sort of a creeping, um, not not a creeping, but a kind of um, a, a, deg- a certain degree of authorial projection going on at the same time, uh, particularly amongst um, those of Irish descent or who are actually Irish themselves. Um, and this itself starts to impact as well depictions of some of the states. Uh, John Foster Fraser, for example. Uh, in the early 1900s, travels to in, in the, not so long in the aftermath of the uh, what was known as the 1903 regicide, where you have the murder of King Alexander Obrenovich by um, uh, the by uh, the, the various uh, military officers who would later go on to form the uh, the Black Hand organization. He actually travels to Serbia. He sits in the Serbian Parliament and he um, declares that this. Uh, Serbia itself is this ideal, almost he describes it as this ideal peasant state in the Balkans that, um, that it, and it's not so much ideal in that it's industrialized, but in terms of the fact that its people appear to adhere to these values, even its politicians. Again, at the time, many of the sitting politicians in the Serbian parliament were themselves from peasant communities or represent rural districts. And um, it's not known how it's. I wouldn't know how the degree to which this happened, but apparently many of them would turn up dressed as peasants to parliamentary sitting. So this was kind of deemed conducive to a uh, a more um, culturally robust and um, yeah and uh, healthy society that didn't that sort of lacked all the uh, unwanted influences of industrialization, if you like. So that I would say, particularly in the prior to the First World War, is really the crux of a lot of this change. And this anticipates my, my next question. I mean, this romanticism easily translates into dilemmas on humanitarian intervention, both at home and, and overseas. Um, you argue that Yugoslav image or the image of Yugoslav peasantry somehow helps uh, British opinion makers or, or decision makers to renegotiate the link or, or the relationship between the British society and the British state in, in this period of, of Edwardian uh, crisis, unrest and instability. Could you elaborate on that just a little bit? How, how did these domestic dilemmas translate or project themselves into, into foreign policy uh, realms? 
Yes, well, I'm glad. Uh, I'm glad you raised this up. I was uh, deliberately keeping this um, this next bit, uh, <laughs> holding this next bit back. Actually, um, in conjunction with this sort of shift to a more romanticist um, re- depiction, if you like, you also have a um, the emergence of something. I would say that's actually, ironically, I've somewhat older, even more so than this late 19th century, early 20th century wave of. Um, romanticism and that's what i term the uh the victimhood narrative Mm -hmm. this is something that actually originates during the greek war of independence in the 18 in the 1820s through to the early 1830s um it's in the balkan context it is almost universally predicated on anti-ottoman political sentiment um but in the context of the Southern Slavs, or those who later became the Yugoslavs, it's really uh, the figure of William Gladstone, um, particularly in the 1870s during what's known as the Great Eastern Crisis, um, who defines and, um, if you like, kind of imbues this idea of vic- this idea of victimhood or regional victimhood with a political meaning that, in many cases, crosses the. Um, yeah, that effectively that sort of bridges this gap between uh, foreign policy and uh, the social climate. Um, just to kind of just to, just to, to give the listeners a little bit of context here, um, Gladstone himself, um, Gladstone himself during the Eastern Crisis, which was a series of revolts in the mid eighteen seventies against Ottoman rule by mainly mainly in Serbia, Bosnia, uh, sorry, Bosnia Herzegovina and Bulgaria, um, Gladstone. Uh, by mostly Christian peasant, Christian Slavic peasants, Gladstone seizes on the Ottoman, on the alleged Ottoman atrocities committed against these Christian Slav peasants as a um, and kind of and kind of utilizes them in a, as a sort of rallying cry for public intervention at the foreign policy level. This, I would argue, is kind of the genesis of these later processes um, in the early twentieth century. You see groups such as the Balkan Committee, uh, led by Noel Buxton, um, a prominent, a fairly radical liberal MP, um, but who again, who again points to the areas of the Balkans under Ottoman rule or nominal Ottoman, or well, less so under nominal Ottoman rule like Bosnia and Herzegovina, but specifically what would later become what's, what is today North Macedonia, um, which had remained under full Ottoman rule, um, as a kind of uh, as an as a need as almost as a kind of as unfinished business, if you like, this need to and this need for Western intervention, not necessarily militarily, but at a diplomatic and possible and even economic level, um, as a way of freeing these quote unquote Christians from um, these Christian these suppo- suppose this segment of what's of, of what's often referred to as a lost segment of Christendom. Uh, e.g., which again at that point is kind of a euphemism for uh, Europe itself. Um, and in the 19th century, the, the area I focus on, um, this starts. This starts. This is kind of there's a, there are efforts to broaden its appeal, uh, which meet with some success, but not necessarily all that much, by attributing the quote unquote suffering or victimhood of these peasants to domestic factors that were prominent in the British public sphere. So um, calls for, for instance, better working conditions, um, 
uh, issues surrounding the su- women's suffrage, um, but probably most pertinently the issue of home rule in Ireland. Mm-hmm. And I, I would contest that the, the the image of the victim victimized peasant peasant even more so than the more romanticized portrayal becomes this very um, very potent uh, sort of cultural motif an archetype that can root that um, particularly in the context of foreign policy and politics really helps to break down a lot of the apathy or alienation that much of the public themselves um, yeah much of the public themselves would otherwise feel towards this because uh, again the important thing to know is most people in Britain at the time don't really understand um, how foreign policy works. There's not actually a lot of the actual direct interest, which I think is one of the mistakes that previous authors have made in this region is usually very minimal. Um, like, uh, sort of anthropological texts, etc., the kind of focus that deal with um, that deal with Balkan culture or po- certainly political tracks tend to only have a very, very limited appeal. So it's only really by appealing to this sense of victimhood um, by in a in a in a British domestic context that itself is, if you like, um, in, a, in a discursive sense at least, is replete replete with various victims of social injustice or uh, people who require assistance, uh, particularly intervention from the state. Um, it's that is that there's that. Um, it's only through that that these uh, act- activists and those with an actual direct interest in the Balkans are really able to bridge um, and sort of uh, to sort of bridge these two and gain a fo- and gain some kind of footing in the wider public sphere. Truly fascinating. And, and as you progress temporally in chapters five and six, which actually deal with the First World War, you argue that the Anglo-British national identity coalesced at the time when the first Yugoslav state endeavored to consolidate its its fragile existence in the early post-war years. How did the tropes of wartime heroism, but also victimhood uh, that you've discussed now in a different mold, perhaps, reinforce the British support for the Yugoslav unification? Yes, this is... um... This is possible. This is one of the. This is slightly more, a slightly more theoretical, uh, theoretically tricky um, thing to really define. Probably because, mainly because, as you've pointed out, it involves um, the development of British identity, or what I would term in this case Anglo-British identity. Um, just to again, just to kind of contextualize us a bit. Um, one of the kind of big mistakes that, uh, well, unfortunately, is very um, evident, very much evident, particularly in the British public sphere at the moment, um, but really kind of throughout history, um, is this idea of Britain as a as having a kind of single coherent identity. Um, Linda Colley, uh, Collery, I think, uh, Colley's book. Um, which came out in the early 90, uh, 1990s on uh, Britain and British identity, for example, uh, claims that um, a British identity formed just prior to uh, Queen Victoria, um, the uh, the accession of Queen Victoria to the throne in eighty in the eighteen thirties. This is um, this kind of approach has itself very much been challenged. Um, 
and uh, particularly uh, figures such as Benedict Anderson in his book, Imagine Communities, actually singles Britain out as a kind of unique example where there wasn't really a quote unquote national identity. Mm-hmm. Um, there was there were national identities, certainly in Scotland, very much so in Ireland. Uh, you could argue a, some, a somewhat nascent one emerges in Wales. Um, in England, it's but in England particularly, it's very ambiguous. Um, and uh, it's really in this context, as I follow, um, I pretty much followed the approach Jay Winters taken towards this, where he says uh, British identity itself, it's not national. It, do, it doesn't it doesn't adhere to a single national idea so much or idea like as it does in France or a kind of uh, or a sort of ethnic a sense of ethnic belonging, as say could be argued in Germany or even in much of the Balkans um, at the time, it focuses more on a sense of uh, popular affinity to the British state, nominally, namely the crown, parliament, and kind of high prestige institutions such as the Royal Navy. And the First World War itself, again, uh, really without the First World War, it's difficult to see how that uh, this how how this might have evolved otherwise. The First World War is essentially um, to the majority of, pe- of people in Britain, particularly those who don't necessarily serve on the front lines um, or uh, are kind of um, shipped off to kind of theatres that are outside of the western, uh, that are the, not the Western Front. Really becomes this kind of clarifying uh, event. Um, I would argue even more so than the Second World War, in that. Um, it, rep, it, 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 it emerges, it, it, it kind of forges this sense of commonality. Um, again, you can argue how enduring or robust that sense of commonality was, but commonality uh, between what was very much, even in the early 20th century, a very disparate and not at all, and not necessarily unified population. Uh, this is what might come across as quite surprising to, uh, particularly to many non British readers of the book. Um, but that kind of sense of commonality with that, it's then is it's then able, it's that actually becomes um, quite easy to manipulate, particularly in the First World War, which where again in the British domestic context, this is an environment that is saturated, and I mean saturated in propaganda. Um, it's again, it can be quite, particularly in this more cynical, cynical time period we live in. It can be quite. Dif- it's quite difficult to understand just how much the popular imagination and the, the and the sort of the experience of the British public was determined and defined and shaped deliberately by um, state force by uh, well both by the media and which that was worth that was often working almost as a proxy to the state or the central government message. Um, and it's in that context that we have the emergence of Yugoslavia and um, the sort of groundswell and support for Yugoslavia, um, mainly by actors such as R.W. Seaton Watson, uh, who I would argue almost appears as a kind of de facto protagonist for much of the book, um, being Britain's leading authority on Austro-Hungary and uh, much of Eastern Europe at the time. Um but they kind of that it's within this sort of narrative, this very propagandized narrative that presents the British as this unified grouping who are destined in many respects to shape or 
improve or, or, or and, and kind of or, or or charged with a mission to, if you like, purge um, modernity, as it's often called. Again, all these concepts are very ambiguous of its less desirable elements. In this case, Germany or German militarism. Um, the idea of Yugoslavia can be quite easily legitimized within that, I would argue, um, as a political idea, but more so as a humanitarian idea. This, again, builds on the image of peasanthood and peasant suffering. Um, the idea, particular, again, one that's particularly cultivated by British uh, humanitarian and military personnel serving in the Balkans at the time, um, that the peasantry, specifically the Serbian peasantry, although this is later translated and codified as the Yugoslavian peasantry, um, somehow represent a kind of moral uh, moral and even national quintessence. Um, the, so, what, so particularly during the First World War, the peasants, uh, or rather the, certainly the Serbian army, which is overwhelmingly made up of peasant uh, conscripts at the time, um, is imbued with this sense of hero heroism that uh, much of the British soldiers, uh, many of the British soldiers serving on the Western Front are. Um, so a similar kind, and that kind of allows it to really fit into the narrative. Um, and but it's also kind of it also kind of presents the peasantry not so much as victims, but as I say, as I like to say, the heroic victims. The idea of these they become almost these secular martyrs to the uh, the cause of Britain and the Entente during the First World War. Um, and um, yeah, and um, this and this and again, this itself just all fits very easily into this narrative that the Yugoslavia, as both a political project and a, um, as and well as this fulfilling of their quote unquote national de- of the uh, Yugoslavian peasantry's quote unquote national de- destiny, um, has to exist after the First World War. It has to exist because otherwise. Britain itself, uh, Britain and the sense of Britishness would have failed as a concept, as a kind of force for moral arbitration in the world. And also, um, the Brit- Britain would be portray- betraying, quote unquote, victims of modernity. Mm-hmm. Um, so ultimately, I really think that's kind of the crux of so much of this. Wonderful. However, and as the f- final couple of chapters displays, Yugoslavia largely fades from the British imagination in the interwar years. So is these moral imperatives of revival are superseded by the spread of mass consumerism, Yugoslavia reemerges as a mere alternative tourist destination, far removed from the dreariness of suburban interwar Britain. So as the Edwardian sense of Britain as a moral global actor eroded, What was the image of Yugoslavia in the wider public's mind as the world approached the tragedies of World War II? Yeah, this is, um, again, I didn't, in my original PhD, which this book is actually, um, probably won't come as a surprise to your listeners, this book is uh, derived from, I actually stopped uh, pretty much at 1918 at that point, mainly because um, uh, I started to discover that um, many of the um, ideas I've been following um, beginning in the uh, Edwardian period and through to, and through to the first and through into the first world war had pretty much uh, vanished again as you point out they pretty much vanished or they um, 
start to gradually fade into obscurity. It's important as well to note that even before the First World War, the Balkans or general interest in the Balkans that have been quite uh, fired up, particularly um, in the British public sphere, particularly after the uh, the Bo- uh, what was known as um, uh, off in 1903, what has never known as the Ilinden Prebrzeni uprising in Ottoman Macedonia, kind of really um, fired up these this victimhood kind of um, this victimhood sort of narrative. But in the interwar period, particularly with Yugoslavia's founding in uh, December 1918. That victimhood narrative is largely gone. Um, there is kind of, and again, that had been the kind of, that had been sort of the uh, the hook, if you like, for the wider British public um, when viewing this region for so long. It's a band uh, when it once it disappears, there isn't isn't really for a while, at least, particularly during the nineteen twenties, there really isn't anything else anything else that would get say a casual observer excited about it. Um, so again, this is why, sort of, um, as you pointed out, uh, Yugoslavia starts to reemerge, particularly in the 1930s, as this um, as this extension, if you like, of um, sort of uh, British consumerism and particularly international tourism. That is, it's still nascent in the interwar period, but the international tourism is emerging as a kind of viable market, even for the working class. It should be pointed out. <laughs> Nevertheless, I would also point out that. Um, as I do in the book, that um, you still the this sort of understanding of Yugoslavia, even uh, politically or even culturally or even as a tourist destination, is still ultimately a reflection of Britain's own changing domestic climate. Um, as uh, Brad Bevan particularly point, has argued, particularly uh, very convincingly, I, I believe. Um, in England, especially, um, although again, this is pretty, a pretty widespread thing. Um, the interwar period is often looked on as this, is often looked upon as this kind of bleak um, episode that precedes the Second World War, which again, mm-hmm. sort of then would then leads to ma- major um, social reforms under the uh, under um, under the Clement Attlee Labour administration immediately after the Second World War, but. Um, even then, but again, much of that itself, even much of that itself, originates in this interwar period, as well as the emergence of consumerism. Um, consumerism, of course, had always been a thing, even in the Victorian period, but it's only really in the interwar period that we get we see this kind of mass, uh, the growth of this mass consumer culture, um, not just as a sort of individual activity, but very much as a communal activity. Um, Figures such as George Orwell, for example, talk of how cinema and have uh, yeah uh, visiting the cinema or access to the radio is something that um, nearly everyone does. Um, and again, because uh, and and sort of and many of them theorise this is because um, many it, it's often it's often the best way to um, help develop a sense of belonging or attachment, really more to one's community than say any national idea. Um, and the emergence of Yugoslavia as a tourist industry is itself really just as a tourist destination is itself just an outgrowth of this, I would argue. Mm. Um, tourism had into the Balkans was a thing before the First World War, but it's only again, it's only really with the um, the aftermath of the Paris Peace Conference where the Yugoslav government is successful in retaining most of the Dalmatian or, or Croatian coastline. Um, what had previously been known as the Austrian Riviera, 
that we see um, that we see it starting beginning to attract uh, again, not necessarily, certainly not working class people, worth the working class, but a kind of more uh, sort of a more a wider segment of the British middle class, particularly especially as an affordable destination. Again, the the big tourist destination at the time, Italy is increasingly looking at as a, and given the financial economic recession at the time is looking increasingly uh, less viable, let's say for household budgets. So um, Yugoslavia very much, the Yugoslavian tourist board in particular jumps on this and kind of emphasizes its uh, economic, its cheapness as an economic destination. And you also have um, popular uh, sort of some popular writing on this, on the time, particularly, um, uh, Anne Bridges' famous novel *Illyrian Spring*, which very, very much popularizes Dalmatia as this Dalmatia is this kind of genteel, uh, romantic location where uh, middle class, particularly women, can kind of go um, as a means of sort of uh, escaping the drudgery of of a sort of um, Britain at the time. And there's also a lot of, and it's also becomes associated of sort of um, much of the celebrity culture. Uh, Edward the Seventh. Um, indeed, prior to his only a few months prior to his own abdication, this is during the uh, in Britain what's known as the abdication crisis, uh, where Ed, um, Edward the Seventh's affair with Wallace Simpson. Edward the Seventh and Wallace Simpson actually toured Dalmatia in the uh, summer of uh, in the summer of uh, 1936, which again further kind of adds this sense of allure and glamour, um, not really to Yugoslavia per se, but to kind of this coastal area. And ultimately, how does Tiro uh, fit your narrative? It, it sort of bookends the, the the entire structure of of the monograph. He's there in the title, and and you do um, mention him at least in in the conclusion. Yes, I mean, I think it's probably best to think of Tito not so much as a feature of the book, but kind of as you say, the bookend or the full stop to the whole, the uh, metaphorical full stop to the narrative. Um, he doesn't, again, I, he doesn't, I, I, as I say, I wanted to kind of add him just as a way, more as a way of kind of, um, as a, just really as a, as, as a, some kind of, as a clear historiographical break, because, um, again, Tito himself is almost completely unknown, uh, certainly in Britain and indeed amongst many of the other allied countries, uh, including the United States, really until about... I would say 1943. Um, this is whilst uh, Yugoslavia, or was the Yugoslavian Balkans, is under occupation by the Axis powers. But it's only then that Tito starts. Uh, it's only 1943, incidentally, following the work of um, uh, eight of British uh, British operatives um, serving in the uh, Special Operations Executive, which is kind of the uh, a forerunner, a historic forerunner to MI6. Um, Many of these operatives begin to make contact with him during the Second World War. Uh, they get main contact with the partisans and they start to report on uh, Tito and the partisan movement and the communist part of Yugoslavia itself as being the only proactive form of really proactive form of resistance that's actively attempting to, um, yeah, that's actively resisting uh, the uh, particularly Nazi Germany at the time within the um, South Slavic Balkans. Um and I would argue that Tito himself, as a result, he similar again to what how the peasantry depicted in the in the First World War. Tito largely emerges as this. Uh, he essentially comes to um, displace the peasantry in terms of the uh, 
British moral and uh, imaginative consciousness, conscience. Um, and uh, yeah, re- and, that I, and that, that, that I guess is kind of why he's there in the narrative. He's essentially um, he essentially appears as kind of again not really so much as a political actor or someone or as a as a or as a kind of historical figure per se, but as a kind of um, symbol, as a sort of uh, metaphor for this shift again, this sort of shift away from this uh, sort of. This romantic, uh, this romanticism and this agrarianism, and really this understanding of Yugoslavia as this sort of, um, as this sort of haven for the pe- for its peasantry, if you like. So ultimately, I would say that's kind of uh, that would that would I would say that would ultimately be where Tito's significance lies. Mm-hmm. And last but not least, where has this project taken you, Doctor Foster? Uh, what's next out of your workshop? <laughs> <laughs> uh, good question. Um, well, the book itself has only really just come out, so um, I can't. I I don't have any pla- immediate plans for another major project. Although I do want to um, explore. I would. I I am looking to explore the um, kind of these uh, social tre- the influence of these social trends and currents in relation to other countries, particular in the region. Uh, I'm particularly hoping to look uh, more at Czechoslovakia later on. Um, I've actually, I've, I've actually next year, I will actually be a visiting scholar at the, uh, at University College's School of Slavonic and Eastern European Studies. So um, I'm going to hopefully use that. I'm hope and I'm hoping to use, and that's actually where R.W. Seaton Watson's uh, archives are located. So I'm going to hope use those as kind of the, um, I'm hoping to use those as the basis for an art, uh, article. Uh, again, don't ask me exactly what yet, but um, hopefully that'll something will be coming out of that. Uh, will be coming out of that. So uh, watch this space. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> I shall, um, and and our listeners too. Um, Dr. Foster, it was an immense pleasure talking to you today. Uh, thank you for joining New Books in History. Thank you very much. Thank you. <laughs>